Is it bad to bring up Greer? Welcome to PCI Cast, a conversation about life and faith in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. Let's hear what the team have been talking about this week. Well, hello and welcome to PCI Cast. Uh, we have a very special episode uh, for you tonight. Can I also welcome, I mean, if this is your first episode, I know we've had a few new subscribers from our my debut in the, the Herald. I'm sure, Craig, you are a frequent flyer on the pages of our denominational magazine, but it was nice to be mentioned and to get a little bit of promo for uh, PCI Cast. One piece of housekeeping before we get underway uh, from our last episode when we talked about the Psalms and why singing the Psalms in congregational worship is important. We uh, were giving away uh, Robert Godfrey's book, Learning to Love the Psalms, and it is our pleasure to announce, drumroll, drum roll, uh, dreadful, Reverend Alan Marsh, Minister of Second Kitty and Drum Hillary, you are the winner of our giveaway. We hope um, that you enjoy our, the book on the Psalms and we will be sure to try to get it down to you. How are we going to get it down? <laughs> Uh, yes, somehow. Uh, but Alan, thanks for, for liking and subscribing. And thank you as well to the Evangelical Bookshop for ah, donating uh, this copy of Learning to Love the Psalms. For all your book needs, please go to the IC. Oh, no, don't go to the Evangelical uh, Bookshop uh, in, in Belfast. Uh, anyway, time to introduce yes, our, our guest this evening before we waste any more of his, his time. Precious um, time. Uh, we'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Daryl Hart to the podcast. Thank uh, you. Darryl, Good to thank be with you. It's uh, a real pleasure to have you with us. Uh, would you like to tell us just a little bit about yourself? Who 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 are you? <laughs> Who's Daryl Hart? Sure. Well, we should probably say in person. In person, yeah, Be- because you know, yes, he, he's right over. here in the Davy room. These PC, <laughs> these these, these Presby cast guys usually just Skype right in, but no. we have. Well, the United you know, States is a big country. Yes. So. Yeah. You know, but we are but getting over across the, the, the Atlantic is easy. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, Belfast is much further away than wherever. Chortles and Resby are so. I'm just right. saying, you know, we have the, you know, the the, the respect in, towards <coughs> you to, to at least get in the same room as you. But look, it's it's great to be with you. So yes. thank you so much for being here. No, Tell it's us. great to be back. I was here last last year for a conference. Um, met met many of the, these folks here. Uh, I teach history at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, which is a Christian liberal arts college, uh, very conservative in many respects, especially politically. Before that, I've taught at Westminster Seminary, California, Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia. Before that, Wheaton College. I've, uh, I, I, I'm a historian. I do a lot with American Christianity, American Presbyterianism. I'm currently trying to do something on Presbyterians and politics from the Scottish Reformation down to the formation of the Canadian Dominion of all things, um, which is actually kind of an interesting project. But so that's who I am. I'm an elder in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, small congregation in Hillsdale. Okay, cool. Um, I, I, I think my introduction to you was, was off the back of uh, a book that I read about someone who will be talking about it more, hopefully as we go on. Um, Jay Gresson Machen, he wrote a book. Uh, Christianity and liberalism and it was off the back of that book that I read one of your books Defending the Faith which is uh, more of a uh, kind of closer look at Machen and who he was. Machen might be uh, a person or a name that some of our listeners just aren't familiar with. Um, They won't have any idea of who he was, what he thought, what he he did. Perhaps you could give us a bit of a 
um, an introduction to Jay Gresson Machen. Sure. Uh, he, he is, in effect, the founding father, which is a uh, venerable phrase in American uh, discourse, of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which started in 1936. But Machen was a Southern Presbyterian originally. He grew up in Baltimore, a uh, quite learned man, went to, to, went to prominent universities, studied in Germany, studied at Princeton Seminary, eventually was ordained in the Northern Presbyterian Church. He'd grown up in the Southern one, and those two churches is probably way more than your listeners need to know, but those churches did not reunite from the crisis of the Civil War all the way down to 1983. They finally reunited. Um, but Machen then served in the Northern Presbyterian Church teaching uh, New Testament at Princeton Seminary. And in 1920 or so, he, beca he became aware of controversies in the church and was sort of an unwilling, unlikely controversialist. Um, and he was aware especially of a ecumenical movement uh, to form a united church in America, comparable to the United Church of Canada that, that did come in 1925. He was opposed to that. He, he knew other conservatives in the, in the PCUSA who were opposed to it. And that's what led to the writing of Christianity and Liberalism, which was sort of just kind of languished. It wasn't a very popular book until a prominent member of the church where Machen had been a supply preacher in Princeton didn't like Machen's pre preaching, called a press conference, and then that drew all sorts of publicity to Machen. So from 1923 on until 1937, January 1, when he died, he was sort of the go-to guy for what is the either fundamentalist or conservative Protestant view. When the New York Times ran a couple of pieces in 1925 during the Scopes trial, Machen was even invited to testify at the Scopes trial, which is a trial over teaching evolution in public schools mm -hmm. in, in the United States, especially in Tennessee. That was the big right. big news article right. of, the, of the day. Yeah. Machen declined because he said he wasn't an expert in Old Testament, but he also, I think, didn't really want to get into the circus that that became. But the New York Times asked him to write a, a piece on what fundamentalism stands for now, in contrast to uh, the opposite page was by a scientist who said what evolutionists then it stands for now. And that's just a, an example of how Machen became identified as a spokesman. But he, he, he declined to call himself a fundamentalist. He called himself a Presbyterian or a Calvinist. And so he began to oppose liberalism in the Presbyterian Church, which led to the founding of Westminster Seminary in 1929, a controversy over emissions in 1932 that began, which led to the formation of the OPC. But he was also an international figure, and he, he gave lectures in Northern Ireland, Belfast, and London in 1927. Uh, there was a prominent um, PCI minister, yes. or, or someone training for the ministry, John Greer, studied at Princeton, was inspired by Machen's critique of liberalism, and Greer was the one who raised objections to this man, Davy, whose name, first names I forget, or names I forget who was teaching theology, and that led to a trial, and the General Assembly upheld Davies' views, and then Greer led others into what is today the Evangelical Presbyterian Church so, in Ireland. So David Davy trial was in 1927, Seven, I think, I believe. in the presbytery first, and then up to General Assembly. How important was that? How important was Machen in, in all of this? I think it was... Very important. I haven't read as much on the 
situation in Irish Presbyterianism as I should perhaps I've dabbled dipped into it and we have some former EPC pastors who now minister in the OPC so I've also heard about it from from them but but you you pointed to the Princeton theology and and Machen would I mean so Princeton seminary was an institution that represented old school Presbyterian theology which went to a controversy in 1830s over a host of things, but old school Presbyterianism stood for close subscription to the Westminster Confession, Presbyterian polity. They didn't want to get into some of the reform movements that were associated with evangelicalism and revivalism then. Um, and and so that, that, that view of theology, which is very uh, high regard for the standards, high regard for scripture, Princeton was very influential for um, articulating a doctrine of an inerrancy that was really quite full-orbed and reflected the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is actually one of the longer chapters in all the Reformed Confessions on the doctrine of Scripture. Um, so Machen had brought all of that to bear on the controversies, but oftentimes fundamentalism in the 20s was a very thin theological development yes. that featured primarily anti-Darwinism, so they had some view of creation that, you know, I don't know if we want to get into, it's still unsettled in many conservative Protestant circles, but Princeton wasn't all that worried about evolution per se, that wasn't the hub of the issue, nor was the other main feature of the fundamentalism, which was uh, dispensational premillennialism and the return of Christ. Machen, if you look at Christianity and liberalism, which you mentioned earlier, I mean, the bit longest chapter in the book is is the doctrine of salvation, yeah. and it's the doctrine of the vicarious atonement, especially that Machen devotes many more pa pages than say two pages to the doctrine of inerrancy. That's what he really thought was at issue with liberalism. Why liberalism was another religion because it didn't have uh, uh, the Christian understanding of salvation. We've just you've just sorry talked up there about the you know that uh, idea that that liberalism wasn't just something that could be included in a in a big tent in Machen's view, he was he said very clearly in Christianity and liberalism, this this liberalism thing is a is an entirely different religion altogether, completely different from you know confessional Presbyterianism, you know more right. specifically, but Christianity that that he would be he would have been uh, he would have been backing. Could you say maybe just a little bit or maybe a couple of sentences on Christianity and liberalism and how and how it took shape and how it sure. influenced the direction because because initially you've said already it wasn't a big you know blockbuster top of the new york times bestseller book at all it came out of a uh wasn't it a, a conference or a, something a for, for ruling it, elders right in okay. in 1921 at a presbytery of chester but but in the introduction mason makes several points um some of them quite unusual as a political as a liber libertarian a civil libertarian which means High review to th regard for the Constitution and um, and small government in American circles. You know, we don't need to get into that necessarily, <laughs> but uh, he not only touches on that, but he really talks about liberalism as an apologetic effort to try to make Christianity plausible in the modern world, a modern world dominated by science. Mm. So he says this is a noble thing. This is a noble effort to try to square Christianity with modern science. But what they have left after they've done this is nothing supernatural nothing that we would remotely call the redemptive religion of Christianity. So, and then he walks from there into dissecting doctrine of God, doctrine of man, 
doctrine of Christ, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of the church. So, but he, he I mean, I think he's fairly uh, astute at, at identifying one of the major features of what later historians have called Protestant modernism. And Roman Catholics actually have also an episode with modernism. Pope Pius X condemned modernism. And both of those endeavors, both for Roman Catholics and Protestants, is an effort to adapt the Christian faith to the modern world. Now, of mm. course, there are all sorts of ways in which Protestants and Roman Catholics adapt the faith to the modern world just by adding electricity in churches. Eventually, that's kind of ad adaptation. But what they meant by adapting was primarily along the leading lights of modern thought, whether science or philosophy. And so if we're going to, we're going to do that, we, we, we can only do it on the basis of what the Bible will allow yeah. or what the confession would also allow. So bringing us back to, I guess, PCI uh, and all of this is going right. on with um, James, I think James Ernest uh, Davies. that's right. So he very much is on the side of, well, the opponent, his opponents would have described him as, as that liberal modernist who, don't, who didn't believe in the inerrancy of scripture. So we have him on the, on the modern side that you've been setting out for us. And then we have... Greer and, and then this yeah. uh, this greater confessionalism. What comes next after uh, after this fundamental I guess fundamentalism versus uh, modernism? Wh wh where do we go next in the twentieth century? Well, in American circles, you go to uh, evangelicalism, a new yes. a, a new phase of it, conceivably, an evangelicalism associated with Billy Graham, and I I don't know how much that. I mean, Billy Graham's reach was worldwide. Yeah. And so I would imagine there was a following very much here. What kind of institutions took shape around that is hard to, to know. But in, in the United States, in particular, institutions like Fuller Seminary, the National Association of Evangelicals, Christianity Today magazine, those were all institutions associated with this new evangelical movement. Yeah. So that's... That's a conservative Protestant endeavor to sort of replace or to, to do what the mainline churches, the older Protestant churches, the liberal churches are doing, but to do it with Orthodox theology. And meanwhile, the, the mainline churches, and this is probably also relevant for the PCI, the mainline churches in America turned to Karl Barth and New Orthodox theology, and that's sort of a safe way to try to be conservative and avoid the excesses of modernism mm -hmm. and and Bart is you know kind of an interesting character for that because in some ways it seems to me I haven't read a lot in Bart or Bartian studies but it seems to me that you can impute to Bart all sorts of views that you may want to hold um, and and so that's that's another way that the that the churches go so that you avoid being fundamentalist you sort of be Bartian. Would you say that there's anything that everyone who would identify as an evangelical could all agree on from all across the spectrum? Is there one thing or even is there a, something that everyone could say, yes, we all hold to this? Because you've got people on, you know, you've got a Joel Osteen on one side of things who would identify as an evangelical on the other side of things. You've got a, an R.C. Sproul. What do they have in common, even though they would both say, I'm an evangelical? Right. I, I guess... It would be... They're like Billy Graham? <laughs> I 
Ah, uh, that's Marston's uh, quote. I know, I know, I completely <laughs> No, I, I, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this is because I recently reviewed uh, a Baylor historian named Thomas Kidd. He wrote a book for Yale University Press called Who is an Evangelical? And it's, it's an effort to try to reclaim evangelicalism from the people who voted for Donald Trump. Mm. Um, and he identifies evangelicalism. It's his own definition. He doesn't really interact with a lot of the literature on evangelicalism, like even David Bebbington, a man who's taught for many years at University of Sterling, prominent the so-called Bebbington quadrilateral, which has to do with high regard for the Word of God, high regard for the cross, mm-hmm. high regard for... for um, uh, conversion experience, a high regard for some kind of acti- activism or holiness. Uh, Kidd defines evangelicalism by um, conversion experience, high regard for Christ, and the presence of Christ in the person through the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot on the experience there. And I do think Sproul would identify, for instance, with a number of those points, but he would say, wait, there's so much more to it. Mm-hmm. And you've got to tell me what you mean by Christ. You know, give me a little bit more than that. Um, so maybe that's a decent definition for trying to, to include everyone under that that tent. Now I don't have no idea if that might work for Irish Protestantism or even British Protestantism, mm. but um, but it's a hard thing to do. But it's it's a very minimal sort of definition, and it comes it's it's much briefer than the Westminster Standards, believe it or not. So we're going through this journey, back to the journey. We're heading from Davy through uh, into this, um, the 40s, the 50s, uh, this emergence of evangelicalism. We're then, we're then next. Um, you've mentioned these organizations, these coalitions that are founded. Right. Is that, that's a feature, a parachurch feature of evangelicalism. Right, right. And so that's very much a, a characteristic of... Protestantism in the United States without yep. a, an established church, yes. there's all sorts of uh, vitality, all sorts of creativity for going back to the, the second so-called Great Awakening or second pretty bad awakening. Um, but, uh, I mean, all these, a number of voluntary associations start to do religious work like Bible societies, tract societies, missionary societies, and beyond that, even reform societies like temperance, slavery, prison reform, education reform. Uh, and part of what the old school Presbyterian Church did in, in, in upholding Presbyterian polity, Presbyterian theology was to say, we don't really want to do parachurch. We want ministry of the word to be overseen by elders, by assemblies, etc. So they sort of sort of opted out. Now eventually they were still involved in those those broader parachurch endeavors. So more recently, say to to bring it more to the present, okay. I mean after I mean more recently for instance, probably the the elephant in the room is the Gospel Coalition, which I th- assume has some appeal over here in Ireland. So and, and, and figures that we associate that w- with that are, are Tim Keller, John Piper, right. D.A. Carson, um, and they have a big uh, online presence, a number of uh, publications, particularly through Crossway Books. So they, I, but I think they are trying to do something uh, generically reformed. They would call it New Calvinism as opposed to Neo-Calvinism. Neo-Calvinism we would associate with 
the Dutch tradition yeah. of Abraham Kuyper. New Calvinism is more associated with John Piper and his reading of, of Jonathan Edwards and a, a revivalist, pietistic, but still trying to be Calvinistic understanding of things. And so they're trying to sort of inject or return evangelicalism to an older uh, Edwards with Fieldian view of evangelicalism. So in some ways, it, Gospel Coalition is kind of a correction to the neo-evangelical movement of Graham and others in the 1940s and 50s, but they don't want to be militant about it either. And you wouldn't, um, they wouldn't dream of mentioning perhaps uh, sacraments or a particular view on that right. or, or polity and the clues in our name right. were Presbyterians, Elder Rule and, uh, and all the rest. That's right, if you look at their, their so-called creedal statements, they will avoid taking a stand on polity or sacraments. And that would be a feature of these of these of this evangelicalism this uh, uh, this movement um, right so and, and part of what drives that which is which is a feature of Protestantism going back to the 16th century yes. which is with all these different views how do you try to achieve unity Roman Catholics have the Vatican and the Pope mm -hmm. and Protestants are always trying to achieve some measure of unity it's hard to herd cats and that's sort of what Protestants are so there have been a variety of endeavors to try to achieve unity evangelical parachurch organizations at least in the United States but also other places are ways I mean Banner of Truth would be another example of this it yes. seems to be over here of trying to combine Protestants into some sort of unity for fellowship for common endeavor for some at sometimes in the late 19th century, at least in the United States, the Evangelical Alliance, which was a British organization originally, was designed to confront Roman Catholics and other kinds of harmful influences on America. So, but it, it's a way to try to get all Protestants to cooperate in some way. And that's, all, that's been a common desire because one of the features of Protestantism is a lack of unity. But, but we have a... Uh, we in the Presbyterian Church um, uh, have this idea of confessionalism, have this idea of a subscription, uh, which um, is a lot more detailed, a lot more um, uh, lengthy th than your traditional evangelical um, statement, of faith. Statement, statement of faith. Right. Um, but there's a sense in which that even within some Presbyterian denominations that that kind of um, idea that the the fundamentals of the fish, Christian faith are included in the Westminster Standards rather than being explicitly the Westminster Standards in and of themselves. Like the people, the, the, the folks at the Westminster Assembly didn't say, well, these are the fundamental parts of our confession. These are the non-fundamental parts of our confession. These are the parts you've got to really hold tightly to. But there's other bits here that are a bit looser. I mean, a, a, a confessional Presbyterian will want to say, here are our standards, right. full stop. There are no fundamentals contained within them but uh, would that be would that be fair to say the creeds of the 16th and 17th centuries are a lot of mature reflection about yeah. what it what's really important to affirm and and if you're looking for what's a lowest common denominator which is a phrase too often used perhaps but still if you're looking for that you sometimes lose pieces of your faith it, it, doctrinally that are really pretty important to bring it back to uh, Prof. Ernest Davy, w one of his uh, more famous quotes uh, was, lengthy creeds only minister to hypocrisy and unreality. 
where can confessionalism today um, learn from the lessons in the past? H how are we to begin to um, think through a defense of that? Are there historical lessons? Uh, well, I mean, it's been, a, it's been a constant debate in Reformed churches about subscription and what subscription means. So, for instance, because in the, I, don't, I doubt you have many Dutch Reformed <laughs> churches here in Literally Britain. dozens. <laughs> no, there's not. That's <laughs> all. But, but no, 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 there's none. But for, so the OPC recently put together a, a Psalter hymnal with the United Reformed Churches, mm -hmm. which was a conservative church that left communion. It's a, it's a federation, not a denomination, that left the CRC in the 1990s. Um, but um, in, in, in Dutch Reformed churches, met individual members of churches are meant to subscribe three forms of unity. The individual members, not yes. just officers? Yes. Right. So, and, and the OPC, as tightly wound as we may be, we don't <laughs> require that of, of members. We have a five-question uh, vow required of members, uh, and, and it's just in broad outlines. Trinity, Scripture, need for Christ and salvation, a uh, willingness to, to lead a godly life, submission to the session mm -hmm. in matters of doctrine of life and life. So it's a pretty minimal affirmation. And if for, for a time, the, the, the OPC and the Christian Reformed Church tried to pursue church union, and we had trouble kind of working out some of these differences. But, but then when you talk about the OPC and the PCA, t typically people say we're, the OPC is, is, is a more strict communion when it comes to subscription. Mm -hmm. And each, each presbytery has the responsibility for examining men. I don't know if your general assembly is the one that examines or... Individual presbyteries, okay. and then we are sent to... Um, well, well our, 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 mo our model is that um, we have a denominational seminary, Union College, obviously. So a lot of the scrutiny takes right. place there. So when it does come to... Uh, the, the the ordination by presbytery stage it's 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 a it's a given would that be would that be fair to say but what we don't do would be offer scruples right there would be no opportunity right. to uh, when we subscribe we, we subscribe uh, it in full um, right and that's where hypocrisy could come in if your men don't believe all of it and and so the PCA has all sorts of measures for allowing for scruples and registering those in writing in some way. And if, if, a, if a minister changes his views on those or any, any of the things, as I understand it, you know, they're supposed to check in with the presbytery. In the OPC, when it, in the OPC, when it comes to subscription, uh, we generally uh, have a pretty high standard. It, it may vary from presbytery to presbytery. Men will be examined on their views, and, and the presbytery will decide whether if anyone has reservations about parts of the confession, the, the presbytery will decide whether that compromises their subscription. Yes. Uh, and we don't have a formal policy that it's really up to each presbytery. And generally speaking, there's, there's a fair amount of confidence. I mean, we've had issues over uh, creation, for instance, mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes over um, the Sabbath, sometimes over the law, the Decalogue, and how people understand that. But generally speaking, it's a, it's a much more um, 
loosey-goosey, as it were, which <laughs> isn't what you associate with the OPC, but it's a loosey-goosey way to enforce the Westminster Standards strictly, of mm -hmm. all things. Yes. Uh, but allowing Presbyterians and congregations to, to enforce that, whether it, when it comes to uh, ordaining ministers at presbytery level and then ordaining elders at the, the congregational level. But there's no document somewhere knocking around in the, the OPC archives, which is, um, which outlines the essential doctrines of the standards, which is separate right. from the standards. No. So that's really in fact, there, that's a long history um, of trying to identify the essential and necessary doctrines mm. that goes back to the original um, articles of subscription from 1729 for American Presbyterians. That's a phrase that's, that keeps being repeated. And during the warm-up to the fundamentalist controversy in 1892, 1910, 1916, 1923, and again almost in 1925, the Presbyterians had identified, Northern Presbyterian Church had so there is that part, but the OPC is typically, to, to avoid that, what I think many regarded as a mistake in Presbyterian history, we don't generally follow, use that language of necessary and essential. Mm -hmm. we, we simply sort of examine men on their views of the confession, certain parts of it, uh, along with scripture, and then if they raise objections in certain ways, then the Presbytery will decide whether that's within the bounds or not. Mm -hmm. Listen, Dr. Hart, this has been tremendously good fun uh, and I hope really helpful to our listeners as well who have maybe been introduced to you for the first time, been introduced to, um, to Machen as well for the first time. And we should say as well, our friends over at Presbycast sent us um, the, the Machen horn. And I completely forgot to use it because we were so, um, so engrossed in our conversation, but I couldn't let go any further without a... So, so thanks to the guys for, for sending that across. Do, real, real, like, listen. That we, is niche. That, that is proper, very, proper very niche. Very right niche. We, 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 we contacted the, the Presby cast guys six, eight weeks ago, I think. We went through uh, Silent Topher, but he never got back to us. But their new help, um, Bryce, was just straight on the ball and got that sent over to us. So thank you so much to, 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 to the Presby cast guys for, for sending that, and Bryce in particular for... Uh, for getting it over to us in, in, in such good time. Uh, we're we're going to wrap things up just yeah. now, but um, we're uh, pleased to be able to give away uh, a copy of your book, Defending, of the, Defending the Faith, Jagress and Machen, and the Crisis of Conservative Protestantism in Modern America. And uh, and I think, will we get uh, Dr. Hart to sign it? Would that be all right? Oh, for that sure. Will, that will undoubtedly that uh, <laughs> increase its value. 20 folds. Um, <laughs> no, it's like when you drive a new car off over the curb, it, it goes down. And <laughs> Look at there that. you go. Superb. But listen, we'll give that away to, um, as our giveaway this uh, time to whoever, uh, to a random listener who both likes and retweets our show release uh, tweet. Uh, this is coming out on election day here. We'll be going today to vote for somebody, hopefully. Um, maybe the least worst option in your particular constituency, but you'll be going to vote nevertheless. Um, so as you're, you're walking to your polling station and listening to this conversation, we hope it's been edifying. We hope it's been 
helpful maybe in helping you to think through um, your own church, your own experience, uh, and, and I think that, that hopefully that bigger picture or, or, or the bird's eye view of uh, of the twentieth century of fundamentalism of and, and a better idea into some of these words of modernism and evangelicalism and right. trying to figure out that narrative. Um, and as always, go to Dr. Hart's books, um, who will uh, set it out far better than what we've managed to do. Wow. Listen, Dr. Hart, thank you so much for, for joining us the, this evening, this morning, this afternoon, whenever you're listening. We're recording this evening, so thank you for joining us Great to be this with evening. You. And we hope we'll... Enjoyed it very much. We'll hope to have you back another time. Maybe we might have to revert to the, the old school way of doing things and, you know, Skyping right. or something like that. But I'd be uh, glad to do it. It's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to PCICast. Join us again next time for another conversation about life and faith in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter using at PCICast. See you next time. Okay, let's go. Um, (coughs) Hello and welcome to PCICast. Um, you are more than welcome. See, I didn't prepare. Good <laughs> We're gonna. It's gonna take this a couple. Is so of unprofessional. <laughs> okay, that's the nature of podcast. Come yeah, on. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. the first episode we go international, and you have to mess up. I'm man. not gonna mess up. I'm not gonna mess. Up. Okay, right. <laughs> all right. This is the other This is so bad.